Welcome to another edition of Pod Jerky. I'm your host, Tom, and on today's episode, we welcome special guests from the Good Wives Guide to True Crime podcast, Francesca and Colleen. Welcome to the show, girls. Thank you. Today, we are going to talk about some criminal cases in the justice system. There are a couple in the U.S. and a couple here in Canada that we will be discussing that are very interesting. What made you get into the whole true crime genre? Well, you know, it's always been an interest, I think, of of, of all the teams that we have. Uh, there's me, um, I'm fan and Colleen and Christina and Tori and you know we also have a couple other researchers that work with us it's always been something we've been into you know we started off all together uh, working on um, the Gypsy Rose Blanchard case which we'll talk about later you know if, if you don't know what it is just briefly she was a young lady who um, whose mother kept her sick and in a wheelchair for 20 some odd years and nothing was wrong with the young lady her mom you know suffered from uh, Munchausen by proxy syndrome and basically this young lady then contacted an online boyfriend and had her murdered so I was kind of in I'm a writer and an actress and I was looking for something to work on a project that I thought had good potential for being easier to you know kind of sell and work on and so I saw that case come across my desk and I thought oh this is perfect this is exactly what we want to start off with and that that show has not come to fruition yet we're still working on getting it out there but the podcast you know came out because we felt like it was time for the public to know the real truth of the story because what anybody has heard in the public has not been the truth but I've, I've liked true crime since I was a little kid and, you know Colleen I think the same but she can talk more right so I'm a nurse I'm actually in Wisconsin so closer to the uh, Canadian border love to visit more often my family likes to go up there for soccer stuff so I started getting inter- interested in true crime from a very young age, more in historical crime, and then progressively got more involved into some of the darker cases. Um, I cover that on our Patreon because they're just too dark for our mainstream audience. And then because I'm in Wisconsin, one of the people involved in the Gypsy case, uh, her boyfriend was actually from Wisconsin. Um, I am friends with people who knew him. I live just a couple miles away from where he lived. And so Fancy had posted out on Facebook looking for people who lived in Wisconsin to help kind of get down some files uh, from my state and who was interested in the case. And, you know, I hopped right aboard. (laughs) And uh, since then, that was almost two years ago now. And we've just kind of grown as a company together and evolved from more than just the Gypsy case, but now into lots of cases, but several bigger cases. And we do you know, our podcast, The Good Wife's Guide to True Crime, but we also do uh, a YouTube show called Murder by Design, um, where we bring on a lot of different like experts from across the world, but uh, a lot of investigators, uh, medical death investigators, prosecutors, defense attorneys, um, a lot of people who show up on Nancy Grace's show, and to talk about like the details of the case and bring in these experts who can give their opinion on things as well. Yeah, I started listening to your podcast, and I'm into the true crime thing, and I know most people find their true crime on Netflix or basically what the news tells us about, but you guys delve way more into it. I didn't know anything about the toolbox killers until I started listening to your podcast. And man, that is some disturbing stuff right there. It is. I don't know if a lot of people know a lot of the stories, especially here in Canada, where all of the stories in the US aren't always published over here. But listening to your podcast, I was just amazed at the toolbox killers. That's the one that I am listening to right now. I think I'm on episode three. 
three. You guys have a different part series for that and a different part series for Gypsy Rose as well. So I think I'm on episode three for the Toolbox Killers. And it was just very disturbing. Very disturbing. Very disturbing. <laughs> Very disturbing. Yeah, we did, um, you know, Gypsy, we came out with the Gypsy podcast in response to, um, like I said, there was a lot of mis- misinformation out in the public from different media sources. And through our investigation, when when spending four years on it, uh, we we uncovered things that the family were not too happy that, that were coming out. It was not the truth they wanted to put out there. They had been kind of covering it um, from from coming out and we didn't feel that that was the, the story that we wanted to tell we had told them from the very beginning you know the story we wanted to tell was the whole truth nothing but the truth and you know good bad or ugly and that was fine with them until kind of like we got into things that they that wasn't the truth that they thought we would tell you know and so we started off we were going to do three episodes uh, then it was five then it was like seven and then it ended up being a whole 13 episode series that was our whole first season and it was very raw and very emotional because of our real personal connection with that case. Now, season two has been very, very different with, you know, much more of a analytical, you know, kind of look at it and, and, and diving into these, these subjects in different ways. Uh, and, and the toolbox killer is one that was extremely, extremely disturbing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think with the Gypsy Rose one, even what we know about it is just from what we had watched on a 2020. 20 episode when they had come out and I don't think we even heard about it until the 2020 episode had come out and then we started to reach out to each other and you guys started to talk about it and I had to refresh my memory I was like I don't remember this case at all and then I went back and I started looking at it and I was like oh my god now I remember this right because the what happened you know this case comes out and then you know there's the documentary mommy dead and dearest and it was a really good documentary um there was another one uh Gypsy's Revenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one was pretty good. Um, but then they made the act, which it was great production, but it did not tell the actual facts of the case. It was right. very dramatized. They had an agenda they were wanting to get out there with that case. Um, and that unfortunately, the way they portrayed it made it seem that Gypsy was just this innocent, innocent girl is a victim. And she is a victim. But everybody in the story is a victim and mm-hmm. a criminal at the same time. Right. Um, and so what we wanted to do was to be able to show that Dee Dee was a victim of her mom and Gypsy is a victim of Dee Dee and Nick is a victim of his own upbringing and of Gypsy and this is just a just a disaster tornado that they all got mixed up together and created this horrible scenario. So um, Gypsy Rose Blanchard was uh, tw- approximately 23 years old when um, she and her online boyfriend took the life of her mother Claudinia Blanchard in a very very violent, um, extremely graphic way. Um, her boyfriend cut Dee Dee up to just like, I mean, it was terrible. It was, it's tons and tons of, of, um, stab wounds. I can't remember how many, I think it was something like 27 stab wounds. Yeah, about and, 27. Mm-hmm, and then, uh, and, and an additional, like almost severing of the head. Um, he did that. Uh, Gypsy grew up. Uh, she started off in Louisiana in 
cut off Louisiana, which is which is down in the Bayou area. Um, and her mother grew up in a household uh, where she was the baby of a very large family. She was always used to getting her way. She was very sociopathic early on. You could see the tendencies, but instead of, uh, you know, trying to harness that in a good way, her mother really fed into it in a bad way, spawning, you know, what happened here. Didi, from the second that Gypsy was born, was, you know, very adamant that something was wrong with her at three months old. She started, uh, you know, saying that she had breathing problems and all these different things. Uh, so when she was seven or eight, she ended up in a, a, a motorcycle accident with her grandfather with just basically a scrape on her knee. And that is basically how she ended up in a wheelchair. And it, when it started early on, obviously, Gypsy had no knowledge of what was going on. However, it is clear in what we have found that pretty close to being going into the wheelchair, she really did know uh, what was happening and was rather complicit in it. Now, Munchausen by proxy syndrome, some people, you know, the kids can be coerced into that or forced into it, and and sometimes they do become complicit. But this went beyond any scope of a Munchausen by proxy case that, that we've seen out there. It was very different in the fact that it bordered on, it was malingering as well as Munchausen by proxy. Now, a lot of times those do go hand in hand, but um, this one was very unique in the fact that it was almost equally so. You know, then she she moved to Missouri. There was a two-year period of time that uh, lapsed that we, we still haven't figured out what happened during that period of time. Gypsy was 15 at that time. So by the time she was 19, 20 years old, she, you know, kind of wanted to stop all this nonsense and she began uh, seeing Nicholas go to John in an in a online chat and contacted him and eventually asked him to murder her mom, and he did. Um, he told her basically he was a, you know, he had multiple personalities inside of him, one of which was a 500-year-old vampire named Victor who liked to kill. And so she she did, and they fled to his home in Wisconsin and were captured. Gypsy's doing a 10-year stint on a plea bargain, and uh, Nicholas refused to take a plea bargain, so he's doing life without the possibility of parole. So that's that wow. story in a nutshell. So basically when Didi was saying that she had all of these ailments with seizures, asthma, hearing and visual impairment, she was in a wheelchair, she required a feeding tube. Was any of this brought up with the doctors? I was reading that there were multiple surgeries and procedures done and that she would kind of go away from the doctors that were refusing any kind of help and she would find doctors that were actually going to do stuff for her. Is there a reason the doctors would allow stuff like that to happen without knowing the answer? to knowing what is actually going on? So it definitely evolved from this spinning and a lot of like sympathy from doctors for the situation. You know, she mm -hmm. would make these symptoms up. She would actually, uh, so like for her hearing test, she was the first uh, in Louisiana to get a miracle ear. And to go back there in the procedure to do this, uh, it's supposed to be just the patient because you have to say, oh, can you hear this? Can you not hear this? And Dee Dee convinced the doctors to be like, no, I have to go back there with her. She has anxiety. And and she won't, you know, she can only do it if I go back there. And by going back there, she told Gypsy, I'll pinch you when you are supposed to say, yes, I hear this. 
And if I don't pinch you, then you say you can't hear it. And so she was able to kind of con these doctors into believing what she was saying in terms of, you know, the eating. She'd be like, oh, well, she just keeps throwing this up or, oh, she has this horrible reaction and X, Y, Z. That's a big reason I got into uh, with Gypsy because I actually have had three feeding tubes in the last four years. And so I really connected with Gypsy on a lot of our medical issues being similar. And then once I realized that Gypsy actually had nothing wrong with her, it blew my mind. Um, and then as soon as any doctor would kind of wise up that, hey, the stories don't match, she would then move or switch doctors or different hospital facilities. So like going from one network to a different network and back then when systems didn't uh, cross over and files weren't being shared, then they just had no idea. And then Hurricane Katrina happened and allowed for an entire, you know, do-over by moving then to Missouri and saying, well, all the files were ruined in Katrina and was able to add in more conditions like, oh, she had cancer when she was five and had chemo. Well, she didn't have cancer. She did not have chemo. But because, oh, well, the files are gone, she was able to add these more medical diagnoses to her list of problems and then saw all these different providers in Missouri. And we believe that the way Gypsy was acting in, you know, the last couple of years and the way Didi was, we believe that they were gearing up to move again to restart the process because she made Gypsy act and portray herself, you know, 10 years younger than she actually was. Um, and so we believe that she was going to do this again and that Gypsy wasn't going to be having that. And, 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 and also, you know, it is very clear if you're looking at these thousands of pages of medical documents that we have access to that the public's never seen that that there was, you know, there's there's a lot of question here. Um, it is very disturbing, and and it does not make sense. Like some of these these documents, you read them, and you read the test results, and then you read what the doctor has to say, and it's very contradictory. And there are some doctors that we feel, you know, might have had a little bit more um, knowledge of what was really going on, and kind of just looked the other way. Uh, it's 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 a very upsetting case for sure. She felt, Gypsy basically fell through every crack there was. And these doctors, very negligent. I mean, it, it, it just is. It is what it is. I, and I'm not going to name names or anything like that, but negligent is is a big thing. Or the only other explanation for it is that they, they bought into it and wanted to, you know, were profiting in a different way. Right. Well, I believe that Didi comes off as very good at manipulating the situation. And she was seen within her neighborhood circle as very loving and caring and she was a very nice person so she could get away with with that kind of stuff and getting people to trust her in the things that she was saying so I could see why doctors would say that but I know personally with my doctor if I am to say something then he would say okay let's run some tests and see what's happening here so that's kind of where my confusion would be the tests were run they, they were run right but I mean you wouldn't come back with her having leukemia if the tests were run and they were just going by what she was saying Saying to them, she wouldn't be having leukemia or need a feeding tube. They were just going by her word. Well, a lot of the, the things that she she told to the doctors um, were not, and I'm not going to say like superficial, but they were things that you wouldn't necessarily uh, 100% be able to corroborate through certain things. Now, the eye tests and things like that, of course, yes, you know, that can be questioned. But when you're saying, oh, well, she had a seizure last night. Okay, great. She, did I see it? No, I didn't see 
see it. Nobody else saw it. There's nobody to say anything different. If you say she's throwing up, like Colleen had said, oh, she's throwing up all the time. She can't keep anything down. They can't verify that, you know. Uh, so a lot of those things were that. And, and on top of that, she was on a cocktail of. I was just about to say that. that different medications that mimicked some of the exact same, you know, ailments that she was claiming that Gypsy had. Right. So she was on dozens of medications, some that were for GI that could cause constipation or vomiting, some that Mm -hmm. for seizures that if she took too much, she could look like she was almost in a coma or actively have a seizure if she is deprived of those medications. There's Mm -hmm. multiple pain medications that can cause GI issues, but also keep you in like this stuporous state and, you know, very unwilling to cooperate or if somebody's asking her questions, not be able to respond appropriately because she's so drowsy. Um, and there were just dozens of these medications that she would give. So essentially mimic the symptoms of the conditions that she claimed that Gypsy had. And on top of that, I mean, Dee Dee herself had a very small, uh, she, she went through a couple of years of college, I believe, um, in the medical field. So she had just enough knowledge to be dangerous, you know, and she had, when they, when they cleaned out the apartment or the house that they had in, in Missouri, she had hundreds of books that were just like, you know, um, leukemia for dummies, da-da-da for dummies, you know, all these different things. Uh, and so she was reading and cross-referencing and finding out, well, if I do this, what does this do? And what if I do that, well, what will that, what does that look like, you know? Um, and, and definitely in the later years, you know, we saw more things that were a little less, they were a little more, uh, I don't know, you know, the history had been a long time, but there wasn't anything specifically happening in the later years, except that she was more, you know, a drain on charities and people and collecting tons and tons and tons of money going on trips, you know, all these different things because of benefits of Gypsy being sick. And it was a complete and utter show. And, you know, Gypsy, she went along with it and we not, we'll never know why, you know, uh, but and it, it's very clear that she knew what was going on because when she she ended up testifying at Nicholas's trial on his behalf, which was a, which was a shocker. Everybody thought she would, you know, testify for the prosecution, and they, they didn't call her, so the defense called her. And one of the two questions that really, you know, there was two questions that stood out in my mind as thinking exactly what happened, especially with all the things that we had uncovered that nobody had seen before, was that she said, you know, she was asked, "Well, when did you know that you weren't sick?" And she said, well, I always knew I wasn't sick. And then the next question, a follow-up to that was, well, when did you know that you could walk? And she said, well, I've always known I could walk. So it, it became very clear along with the things that Colleen found in the medical records of, you know, things like her pooling saliva in her mouth to pretend like she couldn't swallow to her lying about eye tests, you know, for, from the five-year-old at the time, you know, with it, that faked the hearing test and continued to fake them throughout, you know. So Gypsy did participate in this. It wasn't just like a lot of the munch cows and bite cases where they really make the child physically ill. 
like deathly physically ill. Gypsy didn't experience that. Now she did have a lot of stuff done to her that was absolutely 100% not necessary. Nothing is wrong with Gypsy even to this day, except for the fact that she has become an extremely manipulative and um, I would say, you know, another sociopathic tendency type of person based on what her experiences are with her mother and how she was raised. If I'm not mistaken, she did try more than once to get somebody to kill her mother. She met somebody at a sci-fi convention online and then Dee Dee actually convinced him that she was a minor and I guess that fell through and that's when she went on to, I guess it was a Christian dating site. Mm -hmm. Free free Christian, free Christian dating.com or something like that. Yeah. And that's where she met Nicholas Godijan, right? And that's when all of this happened. Right. So she was on multiple sites. Nick was just one of many men that she was kind of stringing along to try to find mm-hmm. the right one to be able to kill her mom for her. And so Gypsy has said that, you know, she has a weak stomach, that she couldn't have done it herself or, you know, whatever. And I think, you know, she is a smaller girl due to growth stunting and uh, things that have happened to her. And maybe she couldn't have handled that. But we've talked several times, and uh, I think I have four episodes on our first season of the podcast where I go literally month by month, year by year through her entire medical file, including mm-hmm. Dee Dee's as well. And Dee Dee was a uh, type 2 diabetic and was on insulin. Well, insulin is actually one of the easiest ways to actually potentially kill somebody because by giving an insanely large dose of insulin, which she had at the house, you know, it, it just essentially puts somebody into a coma. And she often would help her mom with injections. And so really all that would have had to be done would be to draw up a large amount of it and give it to her. Maybe she, when she's sleeping, give her a second one. And it probably would have done the trick, at least put her into a state that Gypsy could have gotten away from and not killed her mom if, you know, she was still alive when she left. And it wouldn't have been so violent. It wouldn't have brought in, you know, an outside character of a boyfriend or some other person from the internet would have been able to have a closed or an open casket kind of funeral, you know, so many other things. So I think due to all of the issues that Gypsy had with her lifestyle being brought up in this kind of sense, there was a lot of anger on her part and a lot of, you know, she learned a lot of, you know, manipulative traits from her mom and her family. And I think she desired for her mom to suffer uh, in that state. Um, and, and I think that in that, in, in that too, you know, Gypsy has portrayed this as she had no other options, that she tried to run away a couple of times. She didn't, her mom dragged her back. Um, you know, she had tried to do do different things. Uh, but she also portrayed that she had no relationship with her father. That's not true. Uh, first of all, they didn't leave Louisiana until she was 15 years old. And they lived right there in the same area. Second of all, she had a fake Facebook account, or not fake, but, you know, a secret Facebook account under a different name that she was in contact with her father and we didn't find that out and get that information and that actual evidence until uh, we were you know quite a bit into investigating this case that was the first red flag and then we got so for two and a half years I I worked on this solely by myself and and Tori our other one of our other partners you know she had helped me a little bit but it was mostly me working on it until I realized that it was just in over my head as far as you know what this scope of this case was and and so, especially with the medical stuff, I just didn't know what I was looking at. 
you know. And so we asked for two and a half years. I, I asked every chance I could for this interrogation video. It's, it's seen in small clips inside of Mummy, Dead and Dearest and I believe in Gypsy's Revenge. I think they both show a piece of it. I know that Killer Couples on Oxygen has shown a piece of it. But nobody had seen the whole of this interrogation. And it's a four-hour interrogation. Now, Nick's had been everywhere, you know. There was 16 hours of Nick's and four of Gypsy's and we'd only seen, you know, maybe maybe five minutes of it at all. And I kept asking for it. And I was given every reason under the book that I couldn't have it. You know, uh, first it was, well, HBO took it and they never returned it. Well, I tried to, you know, I started trying to tell them how to get it back from HBO legally, that HBO couldn't hold it and all these things. Nothing ever happened with it there. And then it was, oh, well, Mike, the, the attorney, he lost his copy, so I can't get it from him. Then, you know, it, the Green County Sheriff's Department, they weren't releasing it. So eventually uh, we got it in Wisconsin because that's where they actually were first um, arrested. And I didn't even think to look there for so many years. Well, when I finally got it, I, I sat down, I watched it all in one shot and it was definitely the most eye-opening thing I've ever seen in a case that broke that case from being something that had been portrayed for several years one way and realizing, oh man, we really do not have the the right story here. And, and the ability to see how easily Gypsy could switch from one lie to the next lie to the next lie in this interrogation video was shocking. And when we released that, the the family and Gypsy herself turned on us like a dime. It was, it just all of a Instant. sudden we were, yeah, we were villains and how dare we. And But they didn't care that Nix had been out there or that we released Nix or any of those things. It was just that we released that because it portrayed Gypsy in an extremely, extremely um, poor light. So, and, and you guys have been in contact with the family, correct? Oh, yeah. yeah. For, for three years I was. For three years I was, up until the point where I released that video. And then I released that video and and they, they, they turned. I mean, just immediately I was a bad, you know, the bad guy in this situation. And, you know, to the point where Gypsy, you know, called me horrible names and told me she was going to ruin my career. And I'm sitting here thinking, honey, you are a murderer. Like, seriously, Obviously, you're a murderer. So, you know, it was it, it was last year we went through, this is when we released it was last year, and we went through probably one of the worst years of, our, of all of our lives. We had, uh, you know, a, a group of people that were extremely harassing us and bullying us, and come to find out that was actually facilitated um, partially by her stepmother, and I thought that her stepmother was one of my closest friends at the time and didn't even know that that was happening, that she had, you know, falsely given these items to this other woman that was a scam artist and was making it look like our our company was terrible. I mean, it was just hell. We went through hell this last year, all because we released that video. But, you yeah. know, I had told them that we were going to do this from the beginning. And, and, and so it's just, it was a bad, bad situation in the end. But I mean, we've grown a lot since then and we've learned a lot since then. And, and I will forever be, you know, indebted to the fact that this is the story that we started off with because it did make a big enough, you know, a big splash. And we were able from our work on that to really turn this into something very positive for our company and for other true crime cases that we're working on. So, right. So now you guys have access to a lot of the stuff that the public hasn't gotten to see. And like I said, we're going off of the story that we've been told on 2020 or some of the stuff that we've read online. What is there that you can actually talk about without getting 
too deep into it because I do want people to go to your podcast or go to your YouTube page and listen to this stuff because this is very interesting. You guys have a ton of information on it and I don't want you to give away everything that's on there now so that people tune into your show. So what's some of the stuff that you can actually talk about without giving it away too much? Well, I mean, I can obviously talk about um, this interrogation video, which was one of the big things that we ended up with that hadn't been seen by the public. So that is still on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com murder by design. Um, and you can see all of Nick's interrogation. You can even see the uh, videos of his his mom and his uh, stepfather being interviewed as well. So and her. And then, we, you know, we obviously have inside documents and stuff that we've seen. That, that video was a real turning point. Like I said, it paints a very different light of Gypsy. So in that video, you know, she starts off, uh, she's just sitting there and for two hours she sits and she eats and she talks about her trips to Disneyland and she basically tells the police officer how he can save money on his way to Disneyland and, you know, all these different things and acts like absolutely nothing is wrong. She pretends like she has no idea why she's there. Then the investigators, um, you know, what they were waiting on was the investigators to come from Missouri to Wisconsin and those investigators got there and the gentleman comes in, you know, and he's talking to her and it's just the first lie was, well, I don't know what I'm here for. And he tells her, you know, your mother has passed away and she acts like she is shocked. You know, she doesn't act like she doesn't know why. Did she have a heart attack? Did she, did she take her life because I left? I shouldn't have left her, you know, and he basically tells her, no, I know, you know, that your mom is dead. And so then, you know, she tries to tell him she doesn't know, she doesn't know, she doesn't know for, for about another hour. And then, you know, at the three hour mark, it's when it really takes this really crazy turn in that it's where he suggests that maybe Nicholas go to John had done something, you know, or did something. And basically then she throws the whole boatload and throws him under the bus, you know, and basically blames it all on him. And, and our theory is that that was her, her backup plan. You know, first she didn't think they'd get caught second. She thought, well, if I do, I'll just throw it all on Nick. You know, um, she didn't think that they had the ability to pull cell phone records that they had deleted and things like that. So then in the shocking turn of events, he walks out, you know, he, she tells this whopper of a story about how Nick forced her to do this because he hated her and she was just scared and all these different things, you know, and at this time he doesn't have, he's not gotten the, the, all the text messages yet. And he walks out of the room, he comes back in just a little bit later and he tells her, I've just, you know, I've just talked with Nicholas and I've seen the messages, Gypsy, and I know that you're lying to me. And no, no, I'm not, I'm not. And so then he tells her, well, I'm sorry, I can't help you anymore. Walks out the door. She falls down on the ground, begins to start to look underneath the, like, as if she's looking under the door and puts her ear to the door. So they come in and they're like, what are you doing? She's like, I don't know. I'm just scared and I don't know what to say. And, and then he basically tells her, you know, you're going to jail. And she says, well, I can't go to jail. I'm very, very sick. And that's the first time she mentioned that she was sick. And then he closes the door and tells her, well, well you know, you're going. And she goes, um, and immediately right after that, she screams out, I want a lawyer, which in an in indication that she knew she could have a lawyer the entire time, you know, because if she didn't think that she could, like Nicholas never asked for a lawyer because Nick didn't know that that was something he could do. You know, he was, he wasn't versed in that like that, but she knew obviously because she did. And if she knew at that point that she could get a lawyer, then she knew from the jump she could have had a lawyer. And basically she just didn't think she, she needed one. She thought she would talk 
her way out of it and manipulate her way out of it like she had been taught to do by her mother. So um, so that's one big thing. And then um, another thing that we have on our on our um, exclusively, then this is an exclusive to us only. No one else has this on our Murder by Design um, YouTube channel. We have an interview with one of the, she was both the first, one of the first responders and a jail, jail guard at the Green County Jail that Gypsy was, you know, held in. And the stories that she has to share about Gypsy are just chilling to the bone. And you really begin to see that she is not this sweet, you know, America's like sweetheart murderer, which is what we entitled our, um, the series, you know, the, that, that's that, that season, but, um, that she, is very calculating and manipulative and uh, she puts on a big old show to get the things that she thinks she wants to get, you know, and she almost got this woman fired on purpose and the woman had done nothing. You know, she just mentioned that she had been at a, a Comic-Con event that, and so Gypsy ran up to her and was like, Oh, I love Comic-Cons. I go to all kinds of Comic-Cons, blah, 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 blah. And, and you know, the, the officer Hughes said, well, yeah, I, I know that Gypsy. I, I know. And, and, you know, kind of shrugged her off. And so she ran off and, then the very next day, Officer Hughes comes in to work and is called up to the warden's office because Gypsy had turned in that they had a conflict of interest. And if she had known Gypsy outside of, you know, the jail, she had to disclose that to the warden. Now, with, with the smallness of the of it, it may not have changed anything, but the fact that she wasn't disclosing that, then that would be a problem. So Gypsy basically told them that they knew each other because they had been to Comic-Cons together. And the woman had never seen her before, other than, you know, responding to her being missing when her mom was dead. So... Just And that's the level of type of person we're dealing with here because Gypsy wasn't, you know, her bestie and she wasn't nice to Gypsy. Gypsy was going to get her fired. Yeah, I can tell you when this episode gets released, you're going to get a ton of views and a ton of listens to this because I almost want to end this myself and go and watch it right now because this is just some very, very interesting stuff that a lot of us don't know about. And it's amazing that you guys have exclusive rights to certain things and that you are able to share that with everybody so that they are able to go and see and listen to it. Well, yeah. right, and especially for, you know, other countries. I know a lot, we, other countries have, you know, true crime cases themselves, but I mean, obviously you're our neighbor to the north, and this case has won, obviously, because of the insane amount of cases that continue to happen, and other mm-hmm. world news continues to happen. Gypsy is kind of like, okay, it's happened, by, but things keep coming up all the time. Um, new information mm-hmm. will continue to always come out. And, you know, we're in the process. We're still considering doing our series on this in terms of television. And uh, we're going to be doing a mm-hmm. panel with all of our experts that uh, we have that come on our podcast and our uh, YouTube channel to discuss the case as a whole and how they would have investigated or intervened uh, throughout, you know, what they would have done if they were involved in the case. But as well, we're also uh, writing writing a book about 
our experiences while doing this investigation and telling of the true facts behind this case. No, it's no um, slight at anyone else. I mean, obviously, Aaron Lee Carr, who was the, the producer and writer and director of um, Mommy Dead and Dearest, she, she did a wonderful job with the information that she had. I think that, I definitely think that there was a very evident skew from the from the family on that and that they, you know, only wanted one type of story told. And at the time, you know, that made a lot of sense for what they were trying to do. They were trying to bring awareness to it and things like that. So I think that Erin did an ama- amazing job with what she did, but uh, she she didn't spend the amount of time that we did with it and, and have the information that we got. You know, we worked for two solid years on getting all the medical records. And we have medical records that, that the family hasn't even ever seen before because they came directly to us. Now, our intention, even with the fact that we have had issues with Gypsy and the family, is to still provide Gypsy with this comprehensive look at what actually happened to her. Um, because again, as we say, you know, we can sit here and say, you know, Gypsy did this or Gypsy did that, but she is absolutely 100% a product of what her mother did to her. She did not have a chance in life. So sadly, the thing is, is though she's not doing the steps to to get better in prison, she could have had access to health, uh, mental health help this whole time. Dr. Phil offered to help her and she has not done so. And what's even worse is she's not being encouraged to do so. So one of the things that we're doing, the, the lead nurse that started off with me, Titania, she actually is from the Bayou and she grew up with Dee Dee, was one of her best friends through high school and uh, junior high. And so she came on the case wanting to really help Gypsy understand something that her friend had done, not to mention herself understand something that her friend, you know, who she did know was was a manipulative person, but nobody would think that this would happen, you know? So she came on to try and help in that sense. And we have realized now, you know, she, she's gotten, she knows the Petrie family, which is Dee Dee's family. And she uh, wants to represent them because they're upset because they do not feel that Gypsy has, that her 10 years in prison has, you know, really done a whole lot. In fact, it, in, in all reality, in many ways, it has, it has damaged her even more. You know, we always talk about this a lot about prison reform. If you didn't, if you didn't go in a criminal, you certainly come out one, you know, because you've been around these types of people and, and she has had a lot of issues in, in jail and prison. And so we are going, um, originally, you know, Titania was like, well, I want to make sure that she stays in for the whole 10 years because she gets up an option of parole at eight years because she'll have served 80% of her sentence. And I said, no, that's absolutely not what we want to do. What we would, what we need to do is go and take all this information, present it to them in a way to the board that says, Hey, you know what? Yes, we do believe Gypsy should be released right now at this eight year mark, but the only, the condition should be that she has to spend the next two years in an in treatment, you know, very intensive mental health facility that's going to at least at very least try to help her become a productive member of society. Because if she continues on with the patterns of behaviors that we have seen, it she will it won't be long before we hear about Gypsy Rose Blanchard being back in prison, you know. So yep. um and, and I'm not saying that she would go on to kill someone else, but but con jobs or manipulation or or stealing or things like that would be things that she, you know, she just doesn't have the the moral compass for. Um, and the mental health, she is just, she is a very,
very damaged, damaged individual who needs a lot of intensive help and she doesn't believe she does. Okay, are there any last things that you want to say about this case? Because you guys have given me more than enough information and I don't want to spoil anything because I really do want everyone to go and check out your podcast. Well, we have our first season of our podcast, The Good Wives Guide to True Crime. It's on all major podcast players, um, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Apple, XYZ. And it's, I believe, a 13-episode podcast. Mm -hmm. Each of the episodes is about two hours, so it's a long podcast, but we really bring you all of the available information and never-before-heard or seen information anywhere. Mm -hmm. And just be, if you are listening to it and then are interested in what we do now, be warned, it is a very emotional uh, season for us because we are so invested. In this case, there is crying, there is screaming, there is yelling, there is just passion for this case because of what we've been through with it. And so, but what we do now uh, in our second and then our upcoming seasons is a lot more shorter cases, you know, two or three episodes where we bring in, you know, experts and we are doing the Jodi Arias case right now and we have uh, done interviews with Kirk who was her defense attorney, um, and he comes on and talks with us. And so we have that for almost all of our cases, somebody involved. But we really encourage you, if you are interested in the Gypsy case, please go check it out. It's a long, it's intense, but it really is the most concise amount of information you could ever want for that case. And I do want to say, like, it's called, boarding, you know, just kind of expanding on a little bit of what Colleen said is that you have to go into it, especially if you know, if you think you know things about this case, you've got to go into it with a very open mind and really believe and really think to yourself, everything I know about this case, I don't know anything about this case. Because truthfully, it is such a layer and littered and insanely twisted and very, very deep case on so many levels that uh, if you go in and you think, oh, the act was truthful, which I did uh, a series with In Touch Weekly Magazine online. I did an eight-part series with them debunking basically every episode of the act, basically telling people, hey, this is what was really real in that set, that episode and this is what was really wrong in that episode. And then so our podcast goes in further detail with that and then our YouTube channel with all the extra bonus things like the, the interrogations and the interview with the, the you know, uh, jailer and all that really gives you a, a, a completely different picture. So you have to go in really thinking, I know nothing about this case and nothing that I've seen has even scratched the surface of what this case really is. Because so everything you, you think that. you know, everything you think you know is not what it seems. Not what it seems. And I think uh, Sheriff Arnett said it best. Uh, you know, when he did the first uh, first uh, press um, conference press conference on this was that nothing in this case is as it seems, and that is the most honest truth about this specific case. And just when you think you may have it figured out and you're like, oh, well, it's this or it's that. Nope. Next week, it'll be totally different and you'll be raging, you know, and, and you feel that from us in this, in this, these episodes. One week, you know, it seems like we're very pro Gypsy. The next week, it seems like we're really, you know, against her. And it, we go through this because we struggled. We really, really struggled. It was heartbreaking for us when we received that interrogation video and then started putting the pieces together of what else we had uncovered, you know, and realizing what was, what had actually transpired. So uh, you guys are going to want to take that roller coaster ride. And I do mean roller coaster ride. 
So. Well, I want to thank you ladies for giving me so many more hours of reading material and watching videos because now I have to go through all of this because it's in my head and now I want to know everything about it. So thanks for that. I appreciate that. No problem. Okay, so maybe we are going to get into a couple other cases that my Canadian listeners here may have a little bit more of an interest in, and I'm not sure how big of cases they became in the U.S., but we have the Kent and Barbie killers. And for those of you that don't know who that is, and this happened about 27 years ago, and I don't remember being, I don't remember them being dubbed the Ken and Barbie killers. We remember them as Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. So we actually even did uh, a little case on this uh, on our podcast because honestly, we we had heard about the case before. Um, obviously, it's in our realm, our wheelhouse of true crime, but we watched the uh, Luca Magnata Don't F with Cats Netflix special, which was wonderfully done. And then it brought up Carla Homolka and that she was dating Luca Magnata, which was just a fabricated lie by him. And then we were like, well, we have to know what is, you know, who are these Ken and Barbie killers? And then learning how twisted and not just he was in, you know, raping and killing these girls, but how she was as well, including her own sister. Right. Yeah. Well, he started off as a Scarborough rapist and Scarborough may be about 20 minutes away from where I live. And it was 20 minutes away from where I grew up. I'm actually east of Scarborough now. I used to be west of Scarborough. It was 20 minutes each way and he was dubbed the Scarborough rapist. And that's where it all started for him until he met Carla Homolka. Right. He hadn't, he hadn't taken a life until he met Carla. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I knew about this case many, many years ago when it first broke. You know, I, I, I'm obviously much older and Colleen. I'm 45. Colleen's in her, you know, 25. She'll be 26 soon. So I had heard about this case when it happened, but I didn't realize it was this case until we started getting into talking about it and we were writing the outline for the episode that we were going to do. And we started off doing it on our radio show. And then um, it's on our, it's, I think it's on our YouTube, actually, not our podcast. It's on our YouTube. Mm. And uh, I didn't realize it was this case until we started getting into it. And I was like, oh my God, it is this case, you know? And so I had heard about it as the one where she basically, you know, she took her sister's life and she helped him kill her sister. And that was what stuck in my mind. Well, then when I started seeing about the Scarborough rapist and, and how this all really started, this is a very twisted, twisted story. And these are two very, very scary people. And then to think about the fact that this woman is out now and has her own children is frightening to me. Yeah, because our justice system is very, very different from yours. When you say life in the U.S., you're going to jail for life. And here it is 25 years. Right. They can add more years onto it. And we'll get into that with the Luca Magnata one because he had different charges filed against him as well. But Carla Homolka, she actually was pretty smart about it because I think what they wanted was Paul Bernardo first and they wanted him behind bars. So Carla Homolka did her plea deal and she was able to get a, less, a lesser sentence based on giving up information about Paul Bernardo. And they got the man that they wanted to get because he had done so many other things as well. And he still maintains his innocence in the murders to uh, up until today. He talks about he was actually a part of the assaults, but he had nothing to do with the murders. It was all Carla Homolka. But unfortunately, she got to speak first and got her plea deal done and got herself out of jail and Paul into it. Now she's out. She goes by a new name. It's almost like nothing ever happened with her case. 
and she is very vilified here. She is a hated woman in Canada. Oh, I'm 100% sure of that. Um, when uh, seen in the uh, Luke and Magnata thing, you know, that why is anybody wanting to be even associated with this woman who helped, you know, commit sexual assault, rape, and murder on, you know, many, many young girls? Why would you even want to asso- associate yourself with her? And I guess for him, it was, well, she's a bigger name and then people will pay attention to me. But it, it's so sick. I, to me, I think when we were doing that case, the biggest gut punch was her sister. Like, it's all gut punching. But that she was involved in the assault and murder of her sister was way, way too much for me to stomach. I was going to say that one was hard for me. But also the fact that these are people that are that are giving this to each other as like Christmas presents yes. and wedding presents and and here honey I brought him a girl for you to rape and murder like what I just it, that the unconscionability of that and how just human life mattered absolutely nothing to them and it just you know they're giving humans to each other as as gifts and that was very disturbing to me yeah and I don't think that it started off with the idea of murder because because the first one happened with Tammy, who was the sister of Carla Homoka. Um, right. She ended up choking on her vomit as she was on the bed and she had been drugged and ended up choking and that's the way she had passed away. And then with Leslie Mahaffey, what had happened was she was blindfolded. Her blindfold had slipped off at some point and they said, you know what? We have to kill her because she has seen who we are. The third one was Kristen French and I still remember this story to this day and they totally went into this with the mindset that they were going to kill her. They kidnapped her. They didn't blindfold her and they had every intention of killing her. So each case just kind of progressed more and more as they went along. And fortunately, they were caught and everything was taken care of. And Paul Bernardo is sitting in jail right now. Carla Homolka is out on a free education and has her own family now. It's disgusting. It is disgusting, but it isn't something that we don't see a lot of. Like, so, so, I mean, even our, even serial killers, serial rapists, um, we see, we do see a progression like that of something starts off as one thing and it really kind of spirals into something else. We've seen that in the, the case of the Golden State Killer who was just recently arraigned um, and, and you know, pled out to a huge insane plea deal here in in the United States uh, to something of 161 counts of rape, murder and burglary. You know, he started off as, as breaking into people's homes, then he uh, progressed to raping these women and then, and I say this all the time, it's, it's one of my things that I say. It's like an, kind of in a catch, like a hold my beer kind of situation. Uh, the police and the um, media made the mistake of saying that he had never broken into or taken, you know, raped a woman that had a man in the home. And so the very next thing he did was break in and ha- there was a man in the home and he began. That's when he, he kind of became the Golden State Killer, you know, um, instead of the East Area Rapist. And that came is, is, you know, the same thing, but we see this progression and it's, you know, people talk about it on like 
CSI and criminal minds and like a de-evolutionization of a killer. And yes, that happens, but it's not in the way that it's necessarily portrayed on TV. A lot of times we see them evolve first and then there's this, this de-evolving. Um, we saw that in the case of, of Ted Bundy. We've seen it in several other, um, you know, cases. So uh, definitely not out of the ordinary for them to start off with, you know, whatever they were doing. And that, and to be fair, the thing with Tammy, that wasn't the first time they did it to her. They had done it to her before and she had no recollection of it. And then they did it to her again. And that's when she, you know, choked on her own vomit. And then I, I'm not quite sure that the second one is just that they, that the, the blindfold slipped and that's their tail and I'm sitting on right. mine, you know? So she will never be able to tell us what really happened because um, she's not here. So that's their tale. That's their spin. And we all know, you know, especially with the case that we're dealing with right now, reporting on the Jody Arias case and, and in old times, you know, it's been an older case that we've, that we've been working on recently. We saw her go through many, many different lies. And, and right now in this, uh, and I don't know if you guys know this case, but the Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell case, which is like this cult mom who killed, you know, they killed their two children, her husband, his wife have all passed away under mysterious circumstances. And they're the ones that predicted that the world was going to end on July 22nd, 2020, which it didn't, um, you know, and this case has gotten crazy. He, we just heard so much testimony in it on the two day preliminary hearing for him and murder charges haven't even been brought to on them yet, but the lies and the just insane way that these people justify things that they do is completely disgusting. I look at it like Paul Bernardo wasn't in it for the notoriety. He was more for the physical and emotional where if you look at a case like Luca Magnata, this guy was all about the notoriety. He wanted yes. Yes. Attention. Yeah. And he wanted the attention. So I think there's a big difference between the two cases. Absolutely. Yeah. And then we had mentioned Don't F with Cats on Netflix. And we actually didn't even know that was about Luca Magnata. We knew about the Luca Magnata story because we read about it in the news, but we didn't know about it until I think it was a couple of months after it came out and said, oh, this is the Luca Magnata story. And that was just like, wow, that was just very, very, very disturbing to watch. And his real name isn't even Luca Magnata. Right. Right. Yeah. But Manny did it. Manny did it. I'm just, you know, just going to put that out there. Manny did it. Yeah, Manny did it. And for those of you that aren't familiar with the case, I'm sure we all know about it by now. And it was a big, big thing here in Canada. But for those who aren't familiar with it in the U.S., he was someone that just craved attention. He started out with videotaping killing kittens. He would put them in the freezer, seal them in a vacuum bag and suffocate them. And no one could ever figure out who he was because he never showed his face on camera. So they actually had Internet sleuths that were trying to figure out who it was by the type of jewelry he was wearing and the pictures that were on the wall. The light switches. Yeah, and the light switches. And he went on to murder a Chinese exchange student that had come over and was in a school here in Canada. He ended up murdering and dismembering him and sending the actual body parts. He would send the foot over to our prime minister at the time, Stephen Harper. He sent uh, one to the Liberal Party that was caught before uh, by Canada Post. He sent some body parts to a couple of the schools out here. And then it was just a giant manhunt for this guy once they figured out who it was. And he kind of taunted the police, saying you are never, ever going to find me. And sure enough, they ended up finding him in an internet cafe in Berlin. Well, um, yeah, and 
and and see that's a very it's a very unusual case in that you know you said that he was in it for the notoriety um there's not a lot that actually are in it for that most of them are feeding some sort of of obsessive need um a lot of it's a power trip for them um many of them it's a you know obviously sexual gratification even if they aren't raping these victims they are in some way getting off from the kill itself you know it's not often that these these killers taunt the the police and are so about attention now we do have a few that have uh, zodiac is one you know obviously yeah. that's a big one btk BTK, he, he taunted the police for, for a long, long time. You know, even, even like I said, somewhat, somewhat the Golden State Killer. Uh, but for the most part, they, they don't, you know, even Ted Bundy. Yeah. He was, you know, he was a very aggressive and he was very, you know, it was blatant that it was him. It wasn't, that wasn't his like intention of getting off on the fact that, Oh, I, I've bested you know, this. And of course he thought he was smarter than everyone. In the room that was his thing you know yeah. he he thought he was just too smart to get caught again and he escaped twice and um and you know we talked with one of his victims kathy rubin and uh we're working on a document or not a documentary a scripted series um or a scripted show movie about um her life because so often we focus on these the killers and the perpetrators and 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 the victims kind of just get forgot um and you know we, we brought this up in a in a in a, a video that we did today live on our Facebook and our YouTube with uh, Kirk Nermy and um, a district attorney that is a very good close friend of mine and the fact that these are people, these are um, someone's daughter, someone's friend, someone's son, someone's sister and these victims have rights to be you know, get justice and to, the, the families have a right to feel that these cases are, you know, prosecuted in the right way and things like that and, and so you have to remember that and when we're telling these stories Again, like I said, we so often focus on, you know, the killer because it's very sensationalized. And one of the, that's one of the things that we try to not do is we try to focus on these victims and the actual backstory. You know, that's why it's murder by design, because I don't believe that anybody is really born just evil. Um, I think that there are a million different things that incorporate into what makes a person do something. And that's kind of the thing that we try to understand in every case that we're looking at is how did we get here? You know? So especially with the Ken and Barbie killers, uh, I can see where Luca Magnata came from. His mom was very strange. They had a very strange relationship, but if you look into the background of Carla and, and Paul, they, they didn't have a remarkably interesting, you know, childhood. It wasn't like, uh, uh, just like with Jody Arias, it didn't. It wasn't like this amount of huge abuse or anything like that. They just were twisted, and you know, it's wonder. It, it's an interesting thought process to figure out how did they get there. You know, how did a, a normal cheerleader girl become this woman who's luring women for her husband to rape and kill, and then in participating in it herself? Yeah, and I wish we knew the psychology behind it, and we're never actually going to figure that out unless we study their brains or get inside their heads. There's no way we will be able to figure that out. But you said something interesting there where you said we tend to forget about the victims and sensationalize the killers. And that's exactly what they want. They want the notoriety. They still want the attention. I 
actually have a friend that does a true crime podcast as well. And, and she focuses on all of the forgotten victims. Doesn't really go into the killer part. She goes into the forgotten victims part. And she would actually be very interested in talking with you guys. Oh, well, yeah. Sure. Well, we would Whatever. love to. Yeah. We would love to. Yeah, we'd love to do that. Um, but yeah, like so with, with Kathy Rubin, you know, uh, she explained that it was by chance that he ended up in that Ted Bundy ended up in their um, their dorm room that night. He was just walking down the street and he was checking doors and their door happened to be unlocked and he picked up a, a log that was out in the backyard and went in and and beat four women senseless and two survived and two didn't and she was one of my, one of the survivors and so I when we approached her I wanted to learn her story as a victim not as you know as as Ted Bundy I didn't want it to be another Ted Bundy story I wanted it to really be about Kathy and the more that we've learned about her her as a person she's incredible what she has experienced and what she has done and it's called you know so the title the working title that we have right now is called Surviving Bundy because that is what she did she overcame she did not allow him to take a second from her life from the moment that she left that hospital and recovered to the now as she's living now you know she did not allow him to claim her life like so many can happen to them you know and I think we all know why these big stations like Netflix and HBO why they all do the stories on the actual killers and not the victims it's, it's sensationalism yeah. itself yeah. itself that's what itself right. yeah um, yeah but somebody has to cover the victims because they are the victims in this case they are the ones that were hurt they are the ones that were killed and they are the ones that need to be remembered and not the serial killers not the serial rapist none of them but unfortunately that's just the way that the world works we are interested in hearing those stories we're interested in knowing what goes on in their heads i know you guys have mentioned with the toolbox killers that the original mindhunter said that these guys are the most disturbing guys he's ever interviewed and we watched mindhunters on netflix as well and the whole psychology of it is so interesting to be in that situation would just be amazing oh absolutely absolutely and and i was going to tell you you know you said something about we don't get to see the psychology of it so very often. Um, however, John Douglas, who is the original Mind Hunter and who is the, the idea of who that is based off of, he's written many books. Well, the last one that I read, which was phenomenal, I just have, I dived into this. Uh, I listened to it on audio. Now, I'm not the type of person to listen to audiobooks. Typically, I cannot listen to fiction on audio at all. However, true crime and um, historical things and, and, and documentary type stuff, I can and that's so I, you know, I relax and listen to it, which is hilarious for me to say. I relax listening to the things about serial killers, but that is the truth. And he wrote a book called The Killer Across the Table, and it is amazing. It is his latest book, and I'm not getting anything for promoting this or anything. It's just that I read it, um, or rather listened to it, and it was so interesting because what he does is he does talk about going in and speaking to some of these and prolific killers and try and, and he, you know, his whole thing is trying to get inside their mind and understand them and what was going through their heads. Like one of the guys, um, I think it's McGowan. Um, he killed a little girl who lived down the street from him. And basically this poor girl, she was just coming to uh, deliver Girl Scout cookies that his mother had, you know, um, had bought from her previously. And she was 
just coming to do so. And he made a decision that day that whoever he opened that door to, he was going to kill. And it happened to be this, this little girl. And he gets into that and what the guy was thinking. And then the next case, there's a case where he's talking about a guy who killed not one, but two different families that he was friends with their child. And what he, he would go out on the search with them. He was, you know, call, they were calling him and, and telling him how upset they were. Very close friends. And to be betrayed like that, to know that here's this person who has taken your child's life and yet they're walking arm in arm with you to go look for them is insane. And he really gets into it and explains all of the things that he talked about with them and the justifications that some of these men made. And it's, it's incredible. Let me tell you, just incredible book. And that's the stuff that interests me in these cases is the psychology behind it. And everyone wants to know the why, why they do it. And it's just an answer that for the most part that we are never going to get because either they're able to walk around it and you aren't able to get answers because they stay silent or it's because there is a mental health issue that you aren't able to find that out. Well, I did, you know, that's one of the reasons like, you know, I, I we go back to the Gypsy Rose Blanchard case. When we originally started, we were just going to tell it from, you know, the point of view of Gypsy. Like I wanted to do this thing where she got to tell her truth. And then I realized that everybody in that case is a very unreliable narrator. They all have their own agendas and their own ideas of what really happened. And nobody is really telling the truth. But for us to actually tell that story in its entirety and really get to the heart of it and kind of tell the most comprehensive truth that probably anybody's going to get from it was to not just focus on Gypsy, but we had to go back to, to you know, Dee Dee as her mother and start with what was Dee Dee like from the day she was brought home from the hospital? What was her life like? Where did, um, what was her mother like? What was the relationship that she had with Rod? How did she become who she became? And so I, you know, I started off with the first thing I did was I went down to Louisiana and I talked with Christy and Rod, um, Gypsy's, you know, stepmother and father. I sat down and talked with her entire siblings, you know, all of them. I talked to friends and family and that went and that clearly became the larger story was, oh my God, this has been, it's not just, you know, Gypsy's lifespan that the story was being, being sculpted. It was Dee Dee's lifespan. And even if you wanted to go back even further into Dee Dee's mom, Emma's lifespan of how she created Dee Dee and Dee Dee created Gypsy. And so that was, you know, that's exactly what we were trying to get into. And once we did that with that case, that really became the focus of everything that we try to do. We really do try and understand what is going on. And yeah, sometimes we can get pretty close, but like you said, we'll never know the exactness of it. Now, some of them, like um, we've talked with Laura Jacqueline Brand, who obviously she spent years and years working with Norris and Bitteker and Norris and Bitteker from the Toolbox Killers. Um, she spent years and years. Now they've both passed away and she's working on some things, but um, the information that she got from them was very valuable. And she, you know, she talks to serial killers every day. And that's ultimately part of our goal for this next, next coming season is we would like to be able to, you know, sit down with some of them and have conversations with them and ask these questions because some of them really do want to know what caused them to do what they did. Like Ed Kemper, you know, he yeah. turned himself in and some 
some of them in even in this book that I'm talking about, The Killer Across the Table, uh, John talks about that, of that they they there was one of them that said, can you please explain to me why I'm like this? You know, why do I do this? And so some of them do want to know what is wrong and will participate, you know, and others will never know. You know, we will we'll never know. I, I highly doubt we'll ever understand fully the Golden State Killer. However, I can, you know, say a little bit about it is that um, he was forced at nine years old to watch somebody rape his seven-year-old sister. And so it kind of goes into the MO of that's what he basically did with his victims. He tied up the men in another room and forced them to listen to hours and hours and hours of just intensive, you know, beating and raping these women that they loved and then killing them both. You know, so we can, to some extent, begin to understand them if you're looking deeper than the crime itself and really going into, well, who were they? Such as, you know, Colleen is, is, is loves the Dahmer case because it's, it's right there in her backyard. It's something she talks about quite often. Well, you know, if you look at Dahmer, so a lot of serial killers, uh, they say that they have experienced trauma to the frontal lobe of their brain before the age of 21. Well, Dahmer is a perfect case for this. Uh, yep. He actually was um, six years old. He was a very ha- described as a very happy, fun, loving, kind child. Um, and then he went into a surgery, um, and I'm not sure exactly what the surgery is. I always forget, um, but it was something to do with a brain surgery and came back and he was a completely different, different kid, totally different. Um, and they said that that changed him. He became a much more um, withdrawn child, very um, aggressive, things like that, you know, that that are indicators of, you know, early indicators of the fact that that he was going to end up being, you know, something. And of course, not all um, sociopaths become uh, people who torture their children or murder people, but some of them are, you know, but others, they go on and they become, you know, CEOs of companies and they're very successful. So it really all begins with how are these people nurtured, I think, a lot, you know, because in Dee Dee's case, especially if her mother had recognized early on some of the very classic signs of her being a sociopath and, and she had done things now to help her now back when this was happening, you know, that wasn't even talked about. We didn't talk about mental health back then at all, especially not sociopaths. So she could have been a completely different person, but because of the fact that they, they didn't catch these warning signs and even with Gypsy, the family knew things were wrong, but nobody did anything. And so it's created this cycle now too with that family is, you know, Dee Dee was clearly a sociopath. T- Gypsy is definitely exhibiting oh, yeah. the same, same qualities. Um, and so it's, it's a crazy situation, but you do really, if you look deep enough, you can begin to sort of find a narrative and explain most of their, you know, where, where things began. Now, not necessarily what makes one person who has been abused and beaten and whatever become, you know, a person who goes out and motivationally speaks and the other one goes out and kills 
most people, right. I don't think we'll know that, you know, but we can see patterns and understand some of the psychology behind it if you look far enough into the case. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up here, but we do want to have you guys back on the show because we could be talking about this all night long, but I would love to have you guys back on and we can go on about other cases such as Jeffrey Epstein. There are so many to talk about. Oh, we just did the whole Epstein thing this week. Um, we've been talking and we had we had our one of our homicide detectives on. We had our leading death investigator, um, Joseph Scott Morgan on. So that was on Monday. And then just today we did a live on our YouTube channel, uh, Murder by Design. That was um, we had Kirk near me as the defense attorney and my friend Carlos as a prosecuting attorney who weighed in on the Epstein case. So you might want to come and check those out because they were incredible. Incredible. Yeah. 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 Yeah, And so, yeah, we can definitely come back anytime you would like. So, yeah, that would be fantastic. Love to have you guys on. That was absolutely amazing. Phenomenal job you guys are doing on your podcast. Please give out your socials right now so people can check you out and get in touch with you if they want to. Sure. So we're on um, we're on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at, you know, slash true crime wives. We also have an additional Facebook um, that was originally dedicated just to the Gypsy Rose Blanchard case has become really um, our platform for murder by design over on Facebook and it's called MBD True Crime. Uh, you obviously can find us on our YouTube channel at Murder by Design and then um, patreon.com slash true crime wives for um, our membership club and any inside documents, pictures, things that we have. We do additional podcasts because Colleen does a historical podcast once a month inside of there and we're about to start to do a few more things with that. And then if you just want to go to one place to find kind of everything, um, you can go to mad, that's M a d ginger g i n g e r like the color of hair entertainment.com so that's mad ginger entertainment.com you can find our podcast on there our youtube channel our blog and the other projects that we're working on that aren't necessarily true crime because we are a fully fledged um 100 full female run um production company on top of all the true crime stuff we do so you can find it all there and uh i'd like to leave you guys with with something that is very dear to our hearts that we're working on right now, and that is our hashtag Love Wins campaign. Um, we have started this, and it can, you know, it, you can enter from uh, Canada as well. We're not really, you know, limiting it to the United States, but what it is is a scholarship fund that we started in connection with uh, Cheryl Mac McCollum from the Cold Case Research Institute, and it was in response to a lot of the things that are happening around the globe right now. You know, a lot of it is happening here because of the George Floyd cases and things like that, but we started it as a way to find peace, and the only way that we're going to get through all of these things as even not just a country of ours, but as the world is by having these meaningful conversations and realizing that hate you can't fight hate with hate. You have to fight hate with love. So hashtag love wins. Um, it's a campaign where we're selling merchandise um, over on Tee Public, and we will definitely give you a link to that um, in our to put in your show notes. But it's uh, shirts, hats, you know, cups, bags, all kinds of different stuff with the logo on it, and a portion of the proceeds from that are going to what we've created as a scholarship fund. So, uh, and we also have a GoFundMe that. 
that we're donating all of the funds raised at the GoFundMe to the foundation. And we're going to pick one, you know, if we get, we're hoping to raise about $5,000. If we raise more than that, or it really becomes successful, then we'll continue it and give more scholarships as we can. But we're hoping to at least raise 5000 and bless one college-age student with a scholarship um, by entering with a 30-second video of telling us how you lead with love and sending that to goodwivesdish at gmail.com and explaining in the email that you send over who you are and your goal, your educational goals. So it's something that's very important to us. And, um, you know, it's something that we feel that we're doing something good in this world and using a platform that, you know, a lot of times is gloomy and dreary and heavy to do something something good. Also, if you are interested in you know a certain case or a certain topic or you're interested in what we do, uh, please feel free to send us any questions, comments, anything to our email at goodwivesdish at gmail.com. Uh, we really try to include, you know, thoughts and suggestions from our listeners and viewers, especially, you know, we do, we've covered a couple of Canadian cases, but if there are, I'm going to be covering, um, the, uh, Butterbox Babies on, uh, my Patreon. Um, and that was a Canadian case. So if there are other, you know, cases like that that you're interested in, feel free to send on those to our, uh, Gmail and we'll definitely get back to you. Yeah, definitely. Everybody that's listening to Today, please go check out the Good Wives Guide to True Crime podcast. Go and check out all of their links. They will be in our show notes for you guys to go and check out. Amazing job, ladies. I'm going to call this part one because I'm going to have you guys on for another part because this was just fantastic and informative information for everyone to know about. Again, thank you very much for coming on the show today. And I will for sure 100% have you guys back on the show again. No problem. Any, Thanks so any, much. Anytime, Todd. Thank you. For, or Tom, thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Here we go now! Hey, Abby! Bob Jerky.